It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Before we begin, here's a reminder that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. That gets you a 20% discount off of a standard subscription. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine plus audio versions of our stories. So that's newscientist.com slash pod20 to get your 20% discount. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Penny Sarchet. And I'm Timothy Revel. On the show this week, we've got alarming news from space, an AI that can predict the next legal highs, and an interview with Philip Detmer, the founder of the wildly popular Kurzgesagt YouTube channel. We're also joined by technology reporter Matthew Sparks to discuss IBM's big quantum computing announcement this week. Hi, Matt. Hello. And now that it's over and we've caught up on some of our sleep, we'll be giving the verdict on COP26. So on with the show. First off, let's start with the news that IBM has made a quantum computer with 127 qubits. That's more than anyone else has managed yet. But what does that really mean, Matt? So qubits are the building blocks of quantum computers, and there's different teams all over the world using various techniques to to develop them. Some of them are using photons, uh, some are using trapped ions, but the ones we're talking about here are using tiny superconducting circuits that get cooled down to almost absolute zero. It's the same technology that Google used to demonstrate quantum advantage in 2019, which is the point at which a quantum computer can do calculations that a classical computer can't if it's given a reasonable amount of time. So uh, a quantum computer might do a sum in two minutes that even a really powerful classical computer would take a thousand years to complete, and, and we call that quantum advantage. Google used a processor with 54 qubits to make that demonstration. And then USTC in China uh, used the same technology to leapfrog them with 56 qubits and then 60 qubits. Now IBM has come in and more than doubled that with a processor that strings together 127 qubits. So does that make this the largest quantum computer to date? That's where we have to be a little bit careful because there's a company called D-Wave that already sells some impressively powerful commercial machines with thousands of qubits. Um, but the thing is they're, they're sort of widely regarded to be really highly specific and focused on just one type of algorithm. And the, the amount of quantumness going on inside is, is a bit up for debate. So what we can say is that this is the, this is the sort of largest superconducting quantum computer yet made uh, or at least publicly revealed, and that superconducting quantum computers are a very popular bet among researchers at the moment. Time will tell which approach to building qubits will become sort of the equivalent of the transistor, the, the tiny com- component which powered the classical computing revolution. But IBM says it will have 400 superconducting qubits next year, and then 1,000 the year after. 
So what what can it actually do? Is is IBM now ahead in the quantum computing race? At the moment, we don't really know what the chip can do. Uh, Google and USTC's superconducting quantum computers, they both run a common benchmark. So we could easily say one is X times faster than the other. And on each occasion, they also published a paper setting out all the conditions of their experiments. But IBM hasn't released any data yet. They've just announced the chip. In, in theory, it could be really fast. If you add a, another transistor to a classical computer, you make it a tiny bit more capable. But because of the weird world of quantum computing, each additional qubit theoretically doubles the power of a machine. So if you're adding 60 qubits, that's potentially quite a leap. A quantum leap, you might say. I <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely have to edit that out. Um, so what, what are the experts saying about this? What's their reaction? So I spoke to Peter Leake at the University of Oxford, and he says it's it's tempting to assess the performance entirely on the qubit count, but that doesn't really paint the whole picture. So uh, we really need to see evidence of it running and, and results showing how fast it can handle certain problems. And I, I think I always say this, but remind us, Matt, what will quantum computers eventually be able to do? Why are we so excited about them? So at the moment, we don't have any truly useful superconducting quantum computers, but eventually they may be able to do the sort of calculations that classical computers really struggle at. They, they might give us new ways to develop drugs. They might give us new ways to develop materials more capable AI, and they can even crack strong encryption. Uh, some researchers even believe they might shed light on potential quantum mechanisms that are going on in the human brain that generate free will. On Monday, the people on board the International Space Station found themselves in a pretty scary situation. They were woken up early and told to take cover. Our space reporter, Leah Crane, spoke to assistant news editor Chelsea White about what happened. Thanks, Penny. It certainly has been a bit hectic out there. What happened this week, Leah? On Monday, the astronauts on the space station were woken up and told to close the hatches and take cover. Wow, that sounds really bad. Yeah, it is not great. <laughs> and potentially also kind of scary. A cloud of debris was hurtling towards the space station, and it was really dangerous for all the astronauts on board. That sounds a lot like the opening to that movie Gravity, where the astronauts are working on the ISS and a lot of space junk comes flying in their direction. Is that kind of what happened here? I think in the movie that was a missile test. It's similar to what happened here, although thankfully nobody was working on the outside of the space station, so they were all able to get themselves safe. What happened was that Russia conducted a test of an anti-satellite weapon and blew up an old defunct Soviet satellite. And the debris from that went everywhere. It created more than 1,500 bits that were large enough to spot from Earth, plus lots of smaller ones. And now all of that is shooting through space at the same altitude the satellite was, so about 485 kilometers up. Wow. And how high is the space station? The average altitude is about 400 kilometers. So right in the line of fire. Yeah, the paths of that cloud of space junk and the station cross about every 90 minutes, So the astronauts actually had to take shelter twice before folks on the ground calculated that they were safe for the time being. How do you stay safe on the ISS during a situation like this? So all the astronauts go into the capsules that shuttle them to the space station because the walls of those are much more armored so that they can survive atmospheric reentry when they bring the astronauts back home. Well... I imagine that NASA was pretty mad about this, huh? (laughs) Uh, I would say that everyone was pretty mad about it. It potentially endangered all kinds of satellites, plus the astronauts in orbit, both on the International Space Station and the Chinese Space Station. But the U.S. government was understandably particularly mad, 
and lots of statements were released calling it irresponsible and reckless and just generally condemning this kind of test. There are also Russian astronauts on board the space station, right? So this endangered them as well. Yeah, and it's unclear whether the Russian space agency was aware of the test before the military carried it out. Is this the first time that a test like this was carried out while astronauts were on the ISS? No, this actually makes Russia the fourth country to test an anti-satellite weapon by smashing up an old satellite. China did it in 2007, and those bits of debris are still in orbits where the space station sometimes has to change its trajectory to avoid them. Wow. Yeah, which is wild. (laughs) And the U.S. and India have both done these tests too, but on lower satellites. So in those last two cases, the space junk would mostly just fall towards Earth and burn up, right? Yeah, and it's way less dangerous that way, but it's still not completely safe. So are these tests legal? Like, is there any oversight in space? There's some oversight. There are some treaties that set forth general guidelines about things that countries can do in space, but not all countries have signed them, and they're also fairly vague. There's no rule against conducting anti-satellite tests, though. (laughs) Well, it kind of seems like there should be. Sure does. (laughs) Lots of policymakers have argued about it for a really long time and ended up getting basically nowhere so far. But if this keeps happening, you know, couldn't Earth end up like shrouded in trash, making it really impossible to do anything in space? Yeah, it is a super scary prospect. But here's hoping that this incident inspires some action from lawmakers. Well, our fingers are crossed for that. Uh, Now back to the crew in London. That was our US colleagues, Leah Crane and Chelsea White. Time out. Time to tell you about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has an amazing library of interactive courses that cover topics ranging from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like astrophysics. If Matt's story about IBM's new quantum computer has you excited, then you'll love the quantum computing course on Brilliant. It explains how the tech actually works, what exactly a qubit is, and you even get to create your own algorithms using a simulated quantum computer. Also, we're about to hear how AI is being used to keep legal highs off the market. If you want a crash course on AI, Brilliant's Introduction to Neural Networks course has you covered. Brilliant is a fun way to learn real problem solving by doing it yourself. Whether you're a beginner or advanced, you can get started learning on Brilliant today for free. And better still, the first 200 listeners to sign up using our special link will get 20% off unlimited access to all the courses on Brilliant for a whole year. That link is brilliant.org slash new scientist. That's brilliant.org slash new scientist. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Next, we have an interview with Philip Detmer, 
His name might not be that familiar to you, but his YouTube channel, Kurtzgesagt, in a nutshell, probably will. So Detmer started it around eight years ago, and it is now one of the largest science YouTube channels in the world, with nearly 17 million subscribers. So the videos, they tend to be around 10 minutes long and filled with incredibly eye-catching animations from his team. They cover everything from how to terraform Venus, brackets, quickly, <laughs> to how the immune system works. So on that latter topic, Detmer has recently published a book called Immune, a journey into the mysterious system that keeps you alive. The book was partly inspired by being diagnosed with cancer himself and learning more about his own immune system throughout his treatment. So our digital editor, Conrad Corti Harper, began by asking Detmer about that experience. Technically, like I know like you're not supposed to say that, but like technically it was like a super interesting time. Cancer is not pleasant uh, and chemo is not pleasant. I can't recommend that, although I did lose weight. But uh, in the end, um, it was, it was, jokes aside, it was super interesting actually learning how medicine works on, on that level, how you work. So like in, in, in a sense, it was actually one of the most interesting times of my life. So when you had that diagnosis, you sort of had, you knew a lot at the time as well about yeah. cancer and how your body deals with it. Like not enough. Like at this time, it was like another reason to like learn like, like what, like addressing my immune system. Hey guys, what, how? Yeah. Like you're not supposed to miss this. Like why did you miss it? And learn, learning about that. And then again, like not being angry at my body, but like grateful that with a little bit help from my doctors, it yeah, melted and ate the tumours. I mean, just on that point, I just thought I'd read some of the things from your book, right, which is about the immune system. Yeah. I haven't personally had cancer, but I've experienced family members with cancer, mm. and I think this would have helped me at the time, the bit about Tumortown, and how the new city council of Tumortown is ambitious and wants to create an amazing new town centre, so it orders tons of construction materials like steel beams, cement slabs and drywall, and just begins building new apartment buildings convenience stores and industry right in the middle of the place formerly known as Brooklyn. None of the new buildings and structures are built to code, of course. They're badly planned, brittle and dangerous, with sharp edges and dangerously crooked. Also, you look pretty ugly. There is no apparent logic. The new buildings are built right in the middle of the streets and on top of the playgrounds and on existing infrastructure. To connect all of the new construction, the old neighbourhood is torn down or overbuilt to make room for new highways and divert traffic. Many of the former residents of Brooklyn are trapped right in the middle of it, some grannies are firmly walled in, have no way to get groceries and begins to starve. And I just thought that's a beautiful description <laughs> of cancer. Um, but yeah, so I, I just wanted to read you that just because it's, it's fun. So how do you come up with stuff like that? Because that's the core of Kurzgesagt, isn't it? I, like somehow I, I'm, I'm convinced that like every information is like sort of funny. Everything complicated is only complicated because like someone is bad at explaining it. I feel like every single fact and every single field can be just like, I don't know, turned into like, a, into like say, into a number of different short stories. And that's it, basically. I try to find those stories and, or make them up in a way that hopefully is like not, not too wrong. Just on the topics, like, are there any topics that sort of scare you? So I find your sort of nuclear war ones particularly horrifying. <laughs> It, like nothing world destructive. All those videos we did, like like I don't feel anything in in a in a good way. Like a, for me, that's just fun. I think the the topic that scares me most is climate change. We 
actually didn't do climate change videos until last year. So like last year we did two for the first time. We just did one this year and we'll, we'll do at least two next year. Because like for many years, I just could not research the topic without getting so depressed that I felt like I can't put this in a video. Through talk, actually, through talking to actual scientists, I, I got back from that climate change depression that was so bad that like I'm, I, I can now again write videos about that. <laughs> Are there any things that make you optimistic for the future? I, I, I have to say biology and immunology. Like immunology, if you think about it, it's like a super new field. Like so much stuff we know about the immune system is basically from the 80s when the HIV epidemic happened and like billions of funds like went into that. And like what we now know today is, it's, I mean, it's breathtaking, it's amazing. It's like the immune, the immune system and biology and like, like learning how we actually work and like how much of like complex systems we are. I mean, it's like a weird thing to get optimistic about, but like, um, I don't know. Well, there's like, M mRNA vaccines were a thing that weren't really a thing until... Vaccines, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, like it like couldn't fit it in the book, book sadly, but like the, um, like all the stuff that's like helping people to live longer, healthier lives and like how much this has already improved. And, and on, on many disciplines, we might be at the next step for like the next big health boost. And I don't know, maybe tackling like really like disease as a as a topic complex eventually i don't see why we would not try to do that so as an end disease yeah I, I think end disease should like very firmly be like one of the goals of humanity and like we are going this direction it's just like we have been going slowly 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 and now super fast what's the biggest misconception about the immune system <laughs> so the biggest misconception i feel is like it is like a thing if you think about it, what is your immune system? Most people don't have like any sort of mental image. And still it's like, like the weather a little bit, like you, 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 people feel confident about like saying, oh, my immune system does that, or like my immune system is good or weak or whatever. Uh, it's like this like sort of cloudy entity in our minds. But in reality, it's not. It's like this super multifaceted organ system that like runs through your whole body interacts basically with like every process that you have and it's just like like yeah this incredible large army of many it's not a thing and sadly we don't learn enough about the immune system to like be able to like you know like imagine it to have like a picture in our mind that was philip detmer talking to conrad quilty harper detmer's book immune a journey into the mysterious system that keeps you alive is out now Next up, the dust has started to settle since COP26, and it's time to take stock of everything that happened in Glasgow this month. So Penny, what's our verdict on the situation? Um, well, I think the top line here was that it was a good COP within the context of COPs um, and what they are and aren't able to achieve. There are real limits to that. So while we have seen really valuable progress that will affect millions of lives, it's still nowhere near enough to stave off the worst impacts of global warming. Not yet, anyway. 
so on the, on the good side of things, what was significant about this COP in particular? So what was so significant about Glasgow was that it represented the first crank of the ratchet mechanism that was agreed in, in 2015 in Paris. And so the idea here was that nations would keep increasing their climate ambitions so that they didn't have to all uh, immediately commit to drastic action back in Paris. So at the time, I was pretty sort of personally sceptical of this. It, of course, in an ideal world, where politicians take climate change really seriously, um, I would have wanted to have seen that drastic action committed to six years ago, but that just wasn't going to happen. So instead, they came up with this ratchet mechanism. And I I think it's fair to say that it does seem to have been a success. So agreements in Paris were calculated to have us facing 3.5 degrees of warming. Many nations then submitted improved plans in advance of the Glasgow meeting that brought us down to 2.7 degrees. And now if the measures agreed at COP26 are acted upon, we should hopefully be facing 2.4. That's still a really bad amount of warming. Uh, so just as a reminder, the Paris goals were to aim for 1.5 degrees and at least well below two degrees this century. But we have to recognise the progress, you know, when it happens. And to be able to bring us down by as by basically as much as we've already warmed the planet, about 1, 1.1 degree, that's a huge deal. Mm. I feel like with the ratchet mechanism is quite clever in some ways. It's like sort of convinces politicians to agree that their successors will have to do something in the future, yet they get the, the glory of the big announcement. It's quite cunning. Yeah. I and and I think you can you can see um the cleverness in not getting everyone to agree to something all in one go and 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 nudging everyone along together. And and I think that's really important when you are trying to make uh, make progress with nearly two hundred countries agreeing all at once. So were there any other big announcements? Yeah, I mean, there were loads. Um, Many, many promising agreements and announcements, some side deals involving not all, but some countries. Um, The thing we have to remember with all of this is, is that, you know, they're great, these announcements, as long as countries stick to their word. So we saw side deals on cutting deforestation and methane leaks. Uh, we saw some nations agreeing to phase out coal or stop financing international fossil fuel projects. And, and these are all great things. And it, it's great to see them on the agenda and, and being discussed. But there is a real issue of trust. So wealthy countries previously promised to be delivering $100 billion a year to poorer countries by now to help them mitigate and adapt to climate change. And, and that's been delayed. The, the sums that are being handed over aren't that high yet. It's been delayed and that's justifiably provoking so much upset and anger. One good thing to come out of Glasgow is that wealthy nations are going to, by 2025, double the amount of money they give annually to help poorer nations adapt to the impacts of climate change that they are already feeling now because many nations are already having some really bad impacts. But of course, because of um, what's happened so far with, with these kinds of payments, there are big questions over whether it will be enough Will it come soon enough? And, and will countries really deliver? Mm. How, how did this all play into there was this like last minute drama over the agreed text? What happened there? Yeah, it was really dramatic, actually. Um, uh, in the final moments on Saturday evening, uh, you know, they were already um, well over 24 hours into extra time. And it looked like uh, it was all going to get gaveled through. But there was a last minute intervention from India um, that weakened the language of the final Glasgow Climate Pact, as we're now calling it. So um, instead of the phrase uh, about phasing out or the phase out of unabated coal, countries are now committed to a phase down of unabated coal. Mm, That does seem like quite a weakening and potentially quite a big issue. 
yeah, it was um, pretty gutting at the time. Um, many nations were just uh, really upset about it. Um, we know coal is hugely polluting and bad for climate change and needs to be phased out as soon as possible. The weakened language, though, was approved because no one wanted to put the whole agreement in jeopardy. There are other provisions in there that are just so essential. Uh, the increased finance for, for the affected nations, just so necessary and they couldn't, they couldn't risk being lost. You know, the weakened language is bad, but um, let's remember this is actually the first time that the formal outcome of a UN climate meeting has mentioned coal and also fossil fuel subsidies. Um, That's ridiculous, really, in 26 years, but it is the first time and, and that's a landmark despite the weakened language. Yeah, definitely some positives and even a phase down, you know, maybe eventually that gets ratcheted up to a phase out. Exactly, yeah. So would we call this an overall success, the summit? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, that's the question, isn't it? And I'm, I'm quite keen to avoid branding COP26 either as a success or a failure. Um, one summit can only do so much. In one of our daily uh, COP26 newsletters, uh, the writer Michael Marshall said, um, this would have been considered a very successful summit if it had happened 10 or 20 years ago. And that really stuck with me. Um, there was progress made. It was significant progress, but it would have been really useful had we been able to do it earlier. But... Having said that, we also know what a failed summit looks like. Over the past 26 years, we've had plenty that have uh, achieved next to nothing. And you can't really say that of Glasgow. What I would say, though, is there are so many people who were extremely disappointed that we're we're still not seeing the, the big action that's necessary to prevent the worst climate change. And, and that's true. We're not. But COP26 couldn't have made that happen. It, it's not built to work that way. It's built to form consensus among nearly 200 nations. A really significant part, though, of the Glasgow Agreement is that nations need to submit more ambitious plans next year. And and those ones need to be more in line with the 1.5 degrees goal. So hopefully we'll see another crank of that ratchet. And and like I said, you know, these UN climate summit meetings, they they can't achieve big sweeping changes all on their own. As our reporter Adam Vaughan wrote, the battle to keep 1.5 degrees alive will be won at ballot boxes, on the streets, in courts and in boardrooms. Lastly, we've got a story about an AI that's been looking closely at new psychoactive drugs. Tim? Yeah, that's right. So this one is a story by Carissa Wong, and it's all about designer drugs. And they are drugs that are chemically very similar to existing illegal drugs, but have been tweaked so that they are no longer captured by the way legislation classifies them, making them essentially legal. And they also tend to be tweaked in a way to avoid detection from current tests. So the intention is that this is uh, all of these tweaks avoid these detection or um, legal classifications while still giving the person taking it the same effects as the original drug. Mm, so essentially, these are known as uh, legal highs, right? So yeah. where does it where does the AI come in? Is it designing legal highs? Not quite. So it's, it's sort of like a drug detective. So the designer drugs tend to cause a bit of a um, game of cat and mouse between the people who make them and the law. So first, what happens is the people making them come up with a new drug, and then the police try to work out what it is so that scientists can make new tests to detect them and legislators can outlaw them. And then once that happens, a new drug enters the market again and the whole cycle repeats. So what the AI can do is it can look at the drug and make a really good guess at its chemical structure. And then that helps the police to get a better handle on it sooner, and then tests could be developed quicker. So how do you um, let an AI look at a drug? What does that involve? Yeah, so there's a, there's this technique called tandem ma- mass spectrometry, and it's just a really simple uh, sort of test that you can do on a chemical, and it gives you some information about a molecule's mass and the elements that it contains. 
So it doesn't actually tell you about the shape or the structure of uh, the molecule that's involved, however. So what the AI does is it was trained on 1,700 known designer drugs, along with um, mass spectrometry data. And then it learned to use a drug's spectrometry data to predict its original design. And this was done by um, Michael Skinner at the University of British Columbia in Canada and his team. And is it any good at it? Well, yes and no. So given some tandem mass spectrometry data for a drug it hadn't seen before, it can predict the molecular structure and it gets it right about 51% of the time. Mm, So yeah, 50-50 doesn't sound that good. Yeah. Um, but often what happens with AIs like this is maybe their first guess is not so good, but if you give them a bunch of guesses, they can actually do a lot better. And so in this case, if it did 10 guesses of what the molecular structure would be, then the right answer was in there about 86% of the time, which is obviously much better. So that just maybe tells us a different way to use the AI rather than it being like the definitive, this is what it is. Instead, it really narrows down the possibilities and that could still be really useful to help a human then go in and confirm what the right answer is. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Matthew Sparks, Philip Detmer, Chelsea White, Leah Crane and Conrad Quilty-Harper. We'll be back next week and do tell your friends about New Scientist Weekly. You can follow us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod. And don't forget, you can get a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist magazine, including the audio edition by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.